Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm your host, Shreya Gupta, along with Dr. Patrick Georgioff, and today a very special guest on Behind the Knife, a legend and an expert in the field of surgical oncology, Dr. Michael D'Angelica. Dr. D'Angelica received his medical degree from Tufts University in 93, uh, followed by his gen surge residency at University of Connecticut. During his surgical residency, his, he did his two-year research fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering and eventually finished his surgical oncology fellowship at the same institution, and he has been a staff surgeon at MSK since then. He currently holds his, the Enid Hopped Chair of Surgery, serves as the Vice Chair of Education and an attending surgeon at MSK and Professor of Surgery at Cornell. Dr. D'Angelica is currently the program director for both the CGSO and HBB fellowships. If his name looks very familiar to you, it's because he's published over 300 peer-reviewed manuscripts, numerous textbook chapters and reviews. He's the co-editor of the Bloomgard's textbook in HBB and pancreatic surgery. He serves in leadership roles in SSO, AHPBA, as well as he's the vice chair of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network Guidelines for various hepatobiliary malignancies. We are so very delighted to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for taking time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm very happy to have you here. We're going to start off with an easy question for you. And uh, we want to hear a little bit about your journey into Serge Onc and HPB and, and why uh, you know, why are you so interested in why is it why is it a great career for you and why might it be a great career for for trainees so um when, when it comes to my, came to my medical training uh i was like most students i was looking to see what interested me the most and i actually loved reading about internal medicine i loved the diseases i thought they were fascinating and i was not very interested in what general surgery was which at the time was a lot of appendicitis cholecystitis i didn't find it as interesting but once I got into the practice of surgery and the practice of medicine, it was without question that I was going to be a surgeon. There was no question in my mind that the day-to-day -day practice was what excited me most. Uh, but really what I was searching for was an interesting disease. And really the way to do that for me was to combine cancer with surgery. And so for me, it was a marriage of doing surgery, which everybody sort of knows how that goes, you know, procedures and making difficult decisions um, uh, and an interesting disease that allowed all kinds of research and difficult decision making. And in fact, allowed you to take care of patients who you may never operate on, which I actually like as part of my practice. Um, so those two things put it together for me. And uh, as I look back on almost 20 years of practice, it, it really was the right decision for me, which uh, is probably the best one of the best professional feelings you can have. Tell us a little bit about your focus in hepatobiliary. What got you interested and um, how did you make that, that your niche practice? Yeah, so I could make up a whole story that it was my passion and I, and I uh, you know, this was my plan from day one and this is exactly what I was gonna do. But of course that's not true at all. 
really my interest when I went into fellowship, I, I was be a cancer surgeon. And honestly, when I practiced, hepatobiliary surgery was not much of a specialty. It was not common. There were only a handful of people who did liver surgery. There were pancreas surgeons out there, but they typically mixed it with a pretty diverse GI type surgical practice. Um, so when I did my fellowship, I obviously was looking at all kinds of jobs and probably one of the most important things that happened to me professionally was that I was offered a job to stay on at Memorial and it was on the hepatobiliary service with someone who should be known to all surgery trainees, Leslie Bloomgard, who's probably considered one of the fathers of modern hepatobiliary surgery. And um, I was obviously overwhelmed with that offer. Um, but I'll tell you, my fear at the time was being so specialized. That may sound strange today. My fear was that I didn't want to be someone who couldn't do anything else. Because in reality, what I really wanted to be was a surgeon who could do anything. I love general surgery. I love the idea of being able to do anything in the abdomen. And I feared that if I only operated on two organs, I'd become a useless general surgeon. And of course, that's become true. <laughs> um, I'm so specialized, it's hard to be a good general surgeon. Um, so what it really, the, really the great part about it is it allowed me to specialize, which in turn allowed me to really answer questions and study things in a very specific manner. And so what my fear turned into really something that was very valuable to me that I became specialized and had the opportunities to answer questions that really came right out of my clinic. You know, it wasn't me, you know, asking questions that were theoretical. They were questions that I would be confronted with on a nearly daily basis. And so uh, that that's how it worked out. It wasn't a plan. It was really trying to be a surgical oncologist. I, I would have been happy being a gastric surgeon or sarcoma surgeon, as long as I could answer a question, but I did truly love hepatobiliary surgery. Uh, and I was very fortunate enough to be in a field that really has blossomed as a specialty. Excellent. So one, one of your many areas of expertise, uh, relate to colorectal cancer and metastases to the liver. And so we're going to, we're going to talk a bit about that today. And I thought maybe before we, we dive in with some more specific questions, you might be able to give us an update on, the biology, the treatment, and the prognosis of metastases to the liver, colorectal cancer metastases to the liver, because it seems like and in very short order, a lot of that's changed with the bimodal disease distribution, uh, much better understanding the genetics of the disease, uh, and some great new, new treatment options and more aggressive surgical management. Yeah. So um, at its most basic level, uh, the topic is interesting because it's a metastatic cancer that's treatable with surgery. And it's a really simple thing, but it's really hard to find any other cancer that is treatable with surgery once it's metastasized. So the biology of it in its most simplistic form is really fascinating because we know for a fact a couple of things that colorectal cancer can metastasize exclusively to one organ, to the liver. And secondly, it can be in very selected situations removed with potential for cure. Now that sounds like something very simple and a lot of people sort of nod their head that they, yeah, they know that. But if you think about that, that is incredibly unique. It speaks to how little we understand about cancer uh, because almost every other stage four or metastatic situation is not curable with surgery. But we know very well and have documented 
you know, long-term disease-free survivors after resection of disease. And um, so that part's fascinating. The, the other interesting thing about um, the disease is, yes, we've seen a little bit about, we've learned a bit about the inheritable disorders that result in colorectal cancer. We've learned a little bit about the somatic genomics, the, the, the mutations we find within the tumors. But the truth is the inherited disorders account for a relatively small group of patients. Most of them have immunotherapy options, but the great majority of colorectal cancer patients do not, unfortunately. Uh, we think that will come down the line, but it is not actively working yet. Um, and the somatic genetics are, are sort of interesting. There are very small subsets of patients where the genetics can push you into certain chemotherapy options, but very few of them we found can truly exclude you from the surgical treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer when patients present in a typical resectable fashion. So I'm a bit of a nihilist when it comes to a lot of the steps forward. We get very excited when we can learn about the genomics, but the truth is that it hasn't had the impact that we would have hoped yet. The potential for it is huge, and obviously we need to keep studying it. But for now, a lot of the things we do in the operating room, a lot of the things we've learned haven't changed that much. It's little subsets where we're making small advances. We're all waiting for the big change for the, the larger group of patients with colorectal cancer. And that brings me to the next question. Um, you have studied extensively the technology of hepatic artery infusion pump. And so the majority of our podcast, we want to spend uh, time talking about this, um, this technology. For our junior li listeners, can you explain uh, what hepatic artery infusion pump is? What is the technical aspect and the surgical aspect that goes into uh, this technology? And uh, kind of give us a sense of how this, this has evolved over the last two decades. Absolutely. So for many years, people have been interested in isolating a region of the body, whether it's a limb or an organ, uh, and providing high-dose chemotherapy. Chemotherapy, uh, any type of uh, systemic therapy can kill cancer. The problem is if you um, put it to the, the highest doses, it'll kill the patient as well. So one of the solutions in general has been to isolate an organ and treat the organ with a higher dose chemotherapy than the body could tolerate. Because obviously if you can isolate the organ, then um, you're able to deliver higher doses without systemic spillover. So this has been done in, uh, in limb infusions for things like melanoma or sarcoma, where you can literally tourniquet the, the leg or an arm and create a, a circuit where no, nothing escapes and you give high-dose therapy to the limb. It has been done to the liver with physical means, literally creating bypass situations and infusing chemotherapy directly into the uh, uh, liver. Uh, with isolated perfusion operations. And then there's hepatic artery chemotherapy, which is basically the same concept, um, but it's really interesting because instead of physically isolating the liver, it's biochemically isolated. In its most basic form, hepatic artery chemotherapy is delivering intra-arterial therapy into the liver. And based on pharmacokinetic studies done many years ago, there's a drug called floxuridine, also known as FUDR, and this is still the drug we use today um, that can be infused into the liver and it has an incredibly high first pass metabolism. 
So you can essentially infuse high dose chemotherapy into the liver and it is biochemically isolated to the liver or pharmacokinetically. So you get very little systemic exposure. And that is really interesting for a lot of reasons. Number one, you can give doses to the liver that the body wouldn't otherwise tolerate. It doesn't spill over. And so you have no systemic side effects at all. If I do this to somebody, they will have no side effects whatsoever that they can feel. Um, and in our experience, what it allows us to do is actually combine it with other systemic drugs. And that's really been the major step forwards in the last 20 years. In, there's lots of ways to do it. You can, you can put a catheter like with an interventional radiologist into the artery and infuse chemo. Historically, that resulted in a lot of thromboses, which was a problem. What we do is largely do a, an implantable pump, a subcutaneous pump in the abdominal wall with a catheter that for the most part is placed in the gastroduodenal artery. So the tip is actually not in the hepatic artery. It's in a branch of the hepatic artery. So it doesn't create, you know, turbulent flow. Thromboses are extremely rare. And the pump itself is, you know, accessible with a needle and you can fill up a, a reservoir, which slowly pumps in chemotherapy uh, to the liver. So the basics of it is uh, a, a surgically implantable pump in a branch of the hepatic artery. Uh, obviously, anatomic variation plays a role here, but that's a lot of detail. Um, and biochemical isolation of the liver, which allows combination with, with other drugs. And before I finish that little part, I wanna make a historical comment. This is not a new concept at all. This concept has been around for since the 19, really since the 1950s and 60s. It was developed mostly in the 1970s and 80s. Um, from a clinical perspective in humans, um, it ran, it, it lost its popularity in the 1990s when a number of systemic chemotherapy regimens came around for colorectal cancer that a lot of people, I believe, miscalculated would completely change the relevance of hepatic artery chemotherapy. And the truth is it did not. And what we're seeing now is a very interesting uh, medical historical thing, I think. It's, it's really seeing a resurgence in popularity although the reality of the treatment has not changed that much. The indications, the, the method of delivery, um, what has changed is how we combined it with other drugs and we've made it a, a bit safer, but um, it's sort of a what's old is new again kind of thing. And a lot of people think it's something new, but it is not at all. This concept is very old. I think it's correct. Liver metastases develop in about half of patients with colorectal cancer, and only about a fifth of these patients have resectable liver metastases at presentation. And some of these folks with initially unresectable colorectal liver metastases progress on first-line systemic chemotherapy agents, uh, for which there are a fairly limited number of treatment options. And so that's where this hepatic artery infusion, you know, pump comes in. Uh, and, you know, interested to hear kind of about lessons learned and how, you know, how effective is the hepatic artery pump uh, in patients who come with initially unresectable disease? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it has been incredibly beneficial for patients with unresectable liver metastases, because obviously, as you point out, that those are the majority of patients who present with liver, liver disease. Um, 
So just one, one little minor correction is it's really interesting. First line systemic chemotherapy, um, very few will progress, at, you know, with their initial uh, treatment. But what happens over time, and people lose track of this, is they will progress eventually, right? People don't talk about this, but chemotherapy doesn't cure people and, init- and eventually people progress. And that typically takes about eight to 10 months. And as you pointed out, um, they have limited options at that point, very limited. The response rates in the second line setting are commonly under 10%. So pump chemotherapy, as I'll call it, uh, as we call it internally at Memorial Sloan Kettering, it's very common parlance, um, has incredibly high response rates. In the first line setting, the response rates are 90 plus percent. Nearly 100% of patients will respond in the first line setting. However, it's often uncomfortable to see someone in the first line setting, say, hey, we're going to take you right to the operating room and put in a pump. When you have systemic chemotherapy options that can, in about 50 to 60% of patients, have good responses, so it, in which is much easier to give. Um, now, the second line and, and chemorefractory lines are where it becomes very interesting. So in the second line setting, um, like I pointed out, with systemic chemotherapy, the response rates are very low. They're at least 50% with pump chemotherapy and and in some settings as high as 75%. It depends a lot on the timing and a lot on the other details, but very high. Now, the really interesting thing to me is we have studied a group of patients who are characterized as chemorefractory. And what that essentially means is they have no options left. They've received every bit of chemotherapy known for colorectal cancer. And the options for those patients are largely to go to what's called a phase one clinic where they're trying new experimental drugs. And it is interesting, the response rate in the phase one clinic is probably 1% because you're trying new drugs, they rarely work, you know, you're always looking for that home run that unfortunately is not so common. We see those patients, they tend to be young and healthy, they tend to be kind of people who survived all this and make it to us. But in the completely chemorefractory setting, we find a response rate of up to 35%. Now that may sound like a low number, but when your other option is either palliative you know, best supportive care or the phase one clinic, it's extraordinary. Uh, and interestingly, at the time we published this experience, there was, we actually had a very hard time getting this published. It wasn't a prospective trial. It was typically done ad hoc because uh, it was hard to organize a kind of trial for these patients. Um, and interestingly, the critique of the, the, the study was that it was all selection bias. Now, the interesting thing is the selection bias um, is the survival. They were young, healthy people who were going to live longer than the average. But if you tell me that I can predict a 30% survival rate uh, in a completely chemorefractory setting, of course I can't do that. There's no, no, no doctor who can. And that honestly is truly amazing proof of efficacy. To, in, that, in that setting, to have a third of patients respond is an incredible evidence of efficacy. Have you seen patients where they respond, their primary tumors respond, uh, but their liver disease, uh, burden of disease doesn't respond? And like, do you find that um, these pump chemotherapies have a role there where they can actually do get their um, oncologic resections of their primary tumors, but given the amount of uh, liver burden disease, they can kind of bridge themselves to a, to a resection using pump chemotherapy. Yeah. It, 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 for the most part, 
cancers or at least colorectal cancer responds uniformly. You sometimes see different responses in different organs, but for the most part, they respond in similar manners. But I think the last part that you mentioned is really, really interesting and, and a particular interest of mine. And that is with all these response rates, can you convert someone to a, to a situation where they can be resected? And this is something we've studied retrospectively and prospectively. And anywhere from 40 to 50% of our patients, most of whom have been treated extensively before seeing us, we can convert to a, a situation where we can take them to the operating room and with relatively complex surgical methods, we can get them completely resected. And the even more fascinating part of that, when we study that prospectively, about one in six of those patients are probably cured. So we have patients who've had diffuse unresectable disease, have a dramatic response to pump chemotherapy, we get them resected. And then over time, sometimes with re-resection of recurrent disease, but over time, they'll remain free of disease for over five years and we think they're cured. Um, so, you know, while I initially started out talking about surgery for resectable disease as being potentially curative, we can actually can make that situation happen after response to pump chemotherapy. That also does happen with systemic chemotherapy, but not nearly with the frequency that we find with hepatic artery therapy. So that's really exciting, especially for young, healthy patients who are looking for everything they could possibly get to, to live as long as possible. You mentioned uh, previously that FUDR has been the mainstay of uh, one of the pump chemotherapy agents. What other agents have been added um, to this regimen that have really advanced this technology? Yeah, it's been hard to beat FUDR in terms of its biochemical advantage. Uh, the fact that it basically stays in the liver and allows other treatment. There have been lots of other drugs used historically. The, the um, one other one that we use very rarely, but do use intermittently is mitomycin. Um, we haven't talked a lot about the, the um, uh, side effects or, or the, the uh, complications of the pump chemotherapy, but one is called biliary sclerosis, where essentially the drug causes bile duct strictures, a lot like primary sclerosing cholangitis, but it's directly related to the chemotherapy. Mitomycin has a relatively high rate of that complication, so we don't use it very frequently, but have used it in a refractory setting. There is a very interesting approach, mostly being performed in France, where they use interventional radiology catheters in the hepatic artery with a, with a port rather than a pump. And they use oxaliplatin, which is another chemotherapy drug used systemically for this disease. And they use it through the pump. It's a completely different approach. It's not the one that we subscribe to, but they have had some success. Interestingly, when they do that, they definitely get a lot of that oxaliplatin spilling over into the systemic circulation because those patients get the systemic side effects of oxaliplatin. Um, so we personally don't feel there's much advantage. We can give the oxaliplatin systemically along with FUDR. Um, so we didn't see much of an advantage to giving it into the hepatic artery. But this is an approach that has been pretty widely published from French groups throughout Europe, um, which, which is absolutely really kind of interesting. Other than that, um, we really haven't found an advantage to find other drugs. I think there are opportunities to give novel drugs through the pump like immunotherapy drugs. and um, uh, But truly, it has to be a situation where you can't 
where there's no advantage to giving a drug, where there's an advantage for, for giving it through the artery rather than systemically. Immunotherapy drugs work very well systemically. So I'm not sure they're going to have a role through the pump, but it's something that could be studied. So imagine that, that, that the reason this is not used more frequently is perhaps the complications or difficulties of actually inserting the pump itself, yeah. pump malfunction. Um, uh, there's probably limited lifespan to these things. Can you tell us a little bit more about, I guess, first of all, exactly how you put them in? Uh, and then what are some of the issues with them? Yeah, so I'll talk about how to put them in, but I think it's actually really important to talk about the downsides of it. I mean, I, it's easy to talk about the upside, the response rates, the conversion to people, to getting people to resection, the cure rates. Um, but th this, this thing that it can do to the liver, it's actually not to the liver. The hepatocytes tolerate this very well. The liver itself tolerates that chemotherapy very well. If, uh, uh, but it, it can be toxic to the biliary tree, which if you knew the anatomy, if you know the anatomy of the biliary tree, the blood supply to the bile ducts is the artery, not the portal vein. So the bile ducts get a very high dose of this therapy and you can get this biliary sclerosis. In general, the incidence of bad biliary sclerosis causing strictures that need stents placed or that even, you know, is about five to maybe seven or 8%. It's significant and it's real. And most of the time it's fixable with dilatation and putting stents in, but occasionally it can be very severe and, and, and diffusely involved the biliary tree and it can be a disaster. And so everybody will see this. If you do this therapy, you will see this. You'll see what, you know, the disasters, trust me at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we have seen every disaster you can imagine and they stick in your brain because the bad always sticks in the brains of surgeons. The good goes away, unfortunately. Um, and I think once people see this, they, they, they shy away from it. And, um, but I always point out that there's plenty of drugs we give that cause incredible side effects. For example, Avastin, which is a, a drug given for all kinds of cancers has a one to 2% risk of bowel perforation, which can obviously be a life threatening thing. People have accepted that very quickly. Um, and actually, to be honest with you, without much benefit in many of the diseases, which within which it's given. Um, so that's one issue. Uh, it does require an operation to place the pump. That is a barrier. And I think people are not necessarily, it doesn't naturally come to them to say, hey, go have an operation so I can put in this device to give you a drug, especially when it's an abdominal operation. Um, the other thing is it really requires a, a team. I always provide the example of HIPEC. IPEC is a, is a similar thing, right? It's a regional therapy. It's taken off in popularity with probably one-tenth of the proof, one-one-hundredth of the proof that hepatic artery chemotherapy has. In fact, all you can find are mostly negative trials when it comes to IPEC. But it's easier in a way because all it takes is a referral to a surgeon and the surgeon does everything. They do the operation, they give the chemo, and then it's over. This requires a surgeon a medical oncologist who's going to manage it along with that surgeon over time. It's not one that one intervention, it's over time. Uh, then there are the technical problems that can happen with the catheter itself. You can get pseudoaneurysms of the hepatic artery. You can erode into the duodenum. You can um, have other catheter related problems or pump infections. And so it requires this familiarity with this device and this type of therapy by a surgeon, a medical oncologist, a gastroenterologist, an interventional radiologist, even nuclear medicine doctors are necessary to test the pump sometimes. 
So it needs to be built into an institution, into a team. It's not, um, it's not simple. So it doesn't naturally come in. So it seems like it requires this incredible burden of proof. And I think those are some of the major reasons why it lost popularity. I think as soon as some systemic drugs, drugs came around in the 1990s that had some reasonably good efficacy, people were quick to get rid of it because they'd seen a couple of disasters. They had realized what a pain it was to give. But what people are now realizing is that the reality is exactly what you said, that after your first line therapy, your options are quite limited and other regional approaches uh, like radio embolization don't work very well. So um, I think um, it's really come back into popularity because it's sort of this circle of knowledge. It's come back. It, it, people have realized this price is probably worth it, but I think you have to be aware of the downsides. It's not all, you know, good stuff, but I, I'm not aware of a single oncologic intervention, such as an operation or any other drug that's free of a price to pay. Almost every drug has a price to pay. A very quick follow-up to that. Um, after the initiation of pump chemotherapy, how quickly do you see responses? Like when would you, uh, when do you t uh, usually get your progression scans? Yeah, everybody has different practices in terms of follow-up imaging. Uh, but for the, what I tell my patients all the time is chemotherapy doesn't work immediately. It, it can work quickly. I have seen symptoms improve. But to see response on scans often takes months. We usually, if you look at most chemotherapy trials, the initial evaluation is at the two or three month mark, depending on how you cycle, you know, your cycles are, are, are organized. Um, that's uh, after a few cycles of therapy. Um, and that's about when you'll see your initial response. Um, responses beyond six to eight months do occur, but your initial response usually happens within those first six months. I have seen evolving responses up to a year, but like most chemotherapy, it, the initial response happens quickly in sort of this two or three month uh, window, and then it extends out to six months or so. So if you're looking at patients who are gonna be converted to resection, you really have to make that decision typically within three to six months. If you keep going and going and going, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're more likely to cause problems in terms of uh, rather than getting them to surgery. That makes sense. One of the re-emerging topics in the field of colorectal cancer is how this disease process is becoming bimodal with younger population um, getting aggressive colorectal cancers with often what we don't know, but maybe a different biology. How are the colorectal liver metastases different in these younger populations? Have you seen uh, a role of pump chemotherapy uh, with this population? Should surgeons be aggressive about referrals to centers like, uh, like MSK that do this therapy so they can be evaluated? Yeah. So, I mean, yes, we're all aware of, well, maybe not, but maybe not everybody's aware, but the demographics of colorectal cancer have changed to the point where the, the age of recommended screening uh, colonoscopies decreased. Um, and nobody's exactly sure why this is happening. There are some differences, but honestly, I don't think the differences have been well worked out. And the treatment algorithms have not really changed specifically for young people. I don't think the biology is different enough that we should change exactly how we approach them. 
it's interesting because my practice has always revolved around younger people, even before this demographic shift. And I think that's a selection thing that happens at a place like Memorial Sloan Kettering. We always joke that, you know, the, the selection of Memorial is you have to make it into New York City and park and be able to afford to park and uh, get up to our, you know, you know, uh, clinic in the middle of Manhattan and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And so we tend to get these young, very motivated patients who are looking for uh, any chance they can get to, to survive and hopefully be cured. Um, and so I often have to remind my um, fellows that the average age of colon cancer is probably in the late 60s, whereas the average age of my clinic often looks like it's around 50. So uh, it's not necessarily representative. But I think, um, you know, we shouldn't look at it in terms of age. It's obviously very interesting to study the impact, uh, what's happening from a public health perspective. But I just operated on an 83-year-old extremely healthy woman with a liver metastasis. Um, and, and hopefully, because she has no other medical problems, and she'll be, and hopefully we've cured her, or given her a chance at long-term survival. So I really think like we see in all surgical diseases, we should not specifically talk about age, but more focus on performance status. There are healthy 80-year-olds and there are very unhealthy 50-year-olds. Um, and also focusing on the goals of care, you know, going through big operations, going through extensive chemotherapy is not necessarily for everybody. And um, I have really focused a lot on some of the younger patients I've seen. Some of them are not, everybody wants to be cured, but some of them really have young children and they're looking to live as long as possible, even if they never get cured. And so they're up for just about anything you can try to do that'll prolong their lives. Their goals are different than the older patients. Their goals may be simply to see their child get married in two years or their kid to you know, graduate high school or college or, or something like that. And, um, or in the most depressing of situations where they have young children, have their children live long enough so that they have good memories of them, which is an awfully difficult thing to talk about, but it's a real uh, goal that young patients can have. So I don't know that the biology has changed uh, how we treat them. I don't think they necessarily have worse cancer, um, but I think when patients show up to us, we have to think about all their options. And the last thing you ask is whether all patients should be referred to, referred to Memorial Sloan Kettering or places like us. And I do think that patients with liver metastases are a group like pancreas cancer, esophageal cancer, sarcomas, things that are best managed in places that are experienced managing them. I have seen many young patients with very limited resectable disease uh, managed in community places with chemotherapy for years and years and years when they had a potentially curative option ignored. And uh, I'm not exactly sure why that happens, but I think with regionalization of care and referral to centers that do it, uh, the outcomes for some of these patients can be dramatically improved. So I, I wouldn't be arrogant enough to say to send everybody to Memorial Sloan Kettering, but I think there are many centers that are within reach of almost every city in, or area in the United States that can deal with these things like this. If we get patients to those places, the outcomes will improve. Let's put ourselves in a time machine and zoom ahead 10 years and think about hepatic artery pumps 10 years from now. What do you think? What's your best guess? What are, what's everything going to look like in the future? Is it going to be a key 
uh, component well, and mainstay of treatment? Uh, well, listen, I, I, you know, the, the, uh, our hope is that at some point we'll stumble, and I truly mean stumble, stumble upon a systemic treatment, a pill or a drug that is all you have to do, and, um, and then uh, the cancer goes away and you don't need surgery. Um, but I think, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years, it's likely here to stay. I think the, um, sorry, hold on a second. So I think that the, um, in the next 10 to 20 years, it'll still be here. And the differences will be how we combine it with other systemic agents. Um, there's lots of really interesting studies in melanoma where regional therapy to the limb has improved outcomes when combined with systemic therapy and immunotherapy. And I think those will come along as well. So I think it'll still be here. There might be slight changes to dosing, slight changes to, to treatment schedules that will improve things. Um, but short of the miraculous drug that comes around, and you really never know when that's going to happen, um, I think it's here for at least decades. Well, thank you so much, Dr. D'Angelica. This is a this is a very unique topic, and we um, something that we have not discussed on the podcast before. So we really appreciate your insights into this uh, into this field, and it's very exciting indeed. Um, I think, uh, like we have talked, the disease is changing, the population is changing, um, and we're advancing. And it's really, really cool to see something that we knew back in 1950s, like you said, is kind of reemerging with some um, more knowledge. And uh, I'm looking forward to more research coming um, on this topic. But uh, that being said, we'll close off our podcast with what we call our final five. Uh, these are... Um, really easy, some personal questions. Uh, we really love to see some spontaneous answers and see what our attending surgeons um, have to say. So I'll start it off. Um, back in your residencies at days or your fellowship days at Memorial Sloan, what was your favorite call snack? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, that, that makes me... Um, <laughs> That reminds me of a very specific story. It was actually when I was a resident. I, I, I don't know if this still happens, but they used to walk around with these little wrapped sandwiches to hand out patients. And I remember one night being on call, I was starving and because I, I probably didn't get a chance to eat anything. And um, this was certainly in the era with, before the 80-hour work week where you know we were working around the clock all the time. And I remember I was just, you know, it was like in the middle of the night and I grabbed the sandwich because I was just starving. And... Um, a nurse came up to me and said, you can't have that. And I said, uh, I'm going to have this sandwich. I don't think you're going to stop me from eating this sandwich. <laughs> so I think the answer to your question is anything I could get my hands on. All right. For your next case, what time, type of music are you requesting in the operating room? <laughs> this is an extremely easy one for me. So uh, I used to operate, well, I, on the days that I operate, say on Tuesday, they are known as classic rock Tuesdays. So. Um, Music in my room is playing nearly 100% of the time. Every once in a while in a difficult situation, I might say shut the music off, but that's rare, thank God. Uh, so the joke- Favorite band? The joke is the music rarely goes past the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I'm in a particularly good mood, it's, it's a Led Zeppelin uh, uh, play, playlist. All right. Well, a little bit of a serious question, but what's your all-time favorite book or what was the last book that you read? Oh, well, so I am a, uh, um, 
nonfiction reader, and I just uh, finished an incredibly long Robert Caro book called The Power Broker, which was about a guy named Robert Moses, who in the uh, throughout the 1900s largely built the beaches, parks, and highways around New York. Um, it was a fascinating, although very long book to read. Uh, it was mostly about power and how a person can, uh, can uh, um, obtain power without necessarily having a position, an elected position or a true position of power. Fascinating book, but unless you feel like reading a 1,000-page nonfiction book, I would not recommend it. All right. What are the two surgical instruments you would choose to operate with if you could only choose two instruments? Kelly clamp and scissors. My favorite surgeon that I used to operate with as a resident always said to me, give me some silk ties, a Kelly clamp and a scissors, and I can do any operation. And I, obviously that's not completely true, but uh, the point is you should be able to do any operation with a simple set of instruments. It's not the instruments that make the operation. Excellent. To close us off, um, your favorite vacation spot and where, oh. when were you there last? Yes, my wife will hate to hear this, but I love going skiing and I'd go skiing anywhere. I love being in the mountains. I love physical activity during vacation, but my family often wins out and we end up on the beach where I end up putting on a good 20 pounds uh, and drinking too much. <laughs> classic, classic scenario. Classic. Same thing in my house. Uh, so do you have any last closing words for trainees who are thinking about you're very involved in social oncology education and HPB education? Any last words for them if they're thinking about going into the field? Yeah, listen, I think surgical oncology is a great field. Uh, there were predictions in the 1970s at the beginning of chemotherapy that Surgery would soon be unnecessary for cancer. They, that prediction could not have been more wrong. Uh, in fact, as systemic therapies get better, there would probably be a bigger role for surgery, um, uh, in, especially in, in the idea that it'll be used for situations that we never dreamed we'd use surgery for uh, with responses to various agents. So uh, it's an exciting field. I think surgical oncology is exciting because it's an interesting disease. It has tremendous research opportunities and I think surgery is around for a long time before that magic uh, uh, cure comes around, which I don't see happening anytime soon. Um, and I think it's a great mix of an interesting disease research and uh, amazing surgery, uh, you know, and, and um, some of the most rewarding patient interactions that allows um, long-term management of patients. If that's what you like, I, I think that's really the way to go. In terms of hepatobiliary surgery, um, I love hepatobiliary surgery because it's technically challenging. Um, it offers some of the most interesting and challenging uh, cancers to manage, like liver metastases um, or some or disease that we fail at a lot, like pancreas cancer, where, where we really need to get better. So it offers so many opportunities for improvement. Um, I think they're both great fields um, with tremendous potential to be fulfilling for anybody interested. Well, thank you very much once again. I uh, We really appreciate your time and uh, thank you for all the advice for our trainees. I'm sure they will appreciate it. Thank you once again. And until next time, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day. 